All right, if you want to turn to Psalm 7, we're going to be in Psalm 7 today. Um, our goal, one of our goals in preaching each week, whether myself or one of the elders or whoever we have preach here, is not to just tell you what God's Word says, but to show you what it says. That is, to open it up together and to help you see, direct your eyes and thoughts and hearts and minds to what it says, to lay it before you as plainly as possible. And the reason for this is so that the truth and, and authority lies not in me or anyone else, but in God and His Word. So that when you leave from here, whatever comfort or assurance, whatever conviction, whatever joy you find is not merely based on the opinions and thoughts of any human being, but on the very words of God. And as much as God's Word clearly says something, we can and ought to believe it with confidence. So I bring that up just to say that when it comes to approaching different passages of Scripture, that's a, that's a primary consideration in my mind as I think about how do we best approach this? What, how does this Scripture uh, necessitate uh, a certain approach? So sometimes that means we walk very slowly through a passage and we consider every word and how they meet, uh, relate to one another. But sometimes it means we kind of step back and look at a larger picture, a bigger context and get the big idea. And so that's what we're going to do today. Um, we're just going to read the whole psalm. It's not super long, 17 verses. We're going to read the whole psalm up front to get the overarching idea and the emotion behind this psalm, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Okay? So we're going to read the whole thing. If you have a Bible, keep it open. We'll keep coming back to it. We'll put a couple verses up on the screen. Uh, all right, so it begins with this little introduction, a shigeon. This is likely, uh, we don't know exactly, but this is, just, is likely a musical term or a liturgical term, probably a note in your Bible will say that, which he uh, sang to the Lord, a shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. And then verse 1, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Now let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust." Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. 
Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. So this is a psalm to take refuge in God's righteous judgment, to take refuge in the God who judges rightly, to rest in him, to find comfort, strength, and hope in him. We'll unpack that as we go, but first just consider this situation that is going on here, um, which this psalm arises out of. So the introductory words tell us that David sang this song to the Lord in response to the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, we don't have any other record of this situation in the Bibles. Apparently, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, which notably was the same tribe as King Saul. We'll come back to that. A man of this tribe was slandering David. David says in verse 3, if I have done this. So somebody was saying something, accusing David of something, and because of this, he's being pursued. People are pursuing him, trying to take his life. Now, even though we don't have a lot of information about this specific situation, we know that this situation happened to David a number of times. David was fleeing for his life multiple times. So Saul, the king who preceded him, and whom the Lord, the Lord eventually removed and replaced with David, tried to kill David on multiple occasions. After Saul died and David was then king, Saul's descendants then also tried to make war on David and, and get rid of David. And so at many points in his life, David had real enemies, and enemies who were trying to take his life. He was in very real danger. Now, why he was in danger in this instance, why people were making these accusations against him, we don't exactly know. But verses 3 through 5 reveal that it was likely due to no fault of his own. David basically says, if any of these accusations are true, if I've done any of this, if I've been evil to my friend, then disregard my prayer. Let my enemy have victory over me. Now, we know from the rest of the psalm that David doesn't think this is the case. He doesn't think he's done anything wrong. But he realizes that if any of it is true, he has no right to be praying a prayer like this. No right to be calling on God's judgment on his enemies, if he really is at fault. So, it's important to, to note that if we are to rightly appropriate this psalm, the words and emotions and requests of this psalm, we have to rightly understand the context. So the immediate context here is not just that there's some tension, some disagreement, some offense between two people. The situation here is not one where we've perhaps sinned against somebody else, but maybe they've sinned against us as well. And the situation here is not one where someone might bring a, a, a correction or rebuke to us and we don't really like what they have to say. Maybe there was some truth to it. Maybe it, not all true, or maybe they didn't really do it in love, and we felt that it was unfair. We often find ourselves in all of those situations, even with brothers and sisters. But those are not situations where our first response should be, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. 
Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. In other words, every experience of relational tension and conflict does not justify labeling the other person or the other people as an enemy and calling on the fire of God to consume them. When we are sinned against by a brother or sister, we can certainly cry for justice, for the truth to come to light, for conviction of sin, even our own, for reconciliation and peace. But if they are truly a brother and sister in Christ, our stance shouldn't be us against them with God on our side. Our stance should be us and them together seeking God's help in reconciliation and peace. And as we all know, this will be the case in, in close relationships. This will be the case in, in marriages. We will need to remember this. So if it's not those situations that we get to cry out God, these words, what are such situations? I imagine most of us don't have enemies actively trying to take our life, but many of you probably have felt at times that you did have enemies, that there were people who hated you, that were out to make your life difficult, maybe not physically trying to take your life, but to make it as difficult as can be. And as far as you could tell, you didn't do anything to deserve this. You can, you know, perhaps names and faces come into your mind as you're reading this. And, and you can relate with these cries and these pleas and prayers of, of David here. Perhaps others of you, if you're like me, you tend to be a peacemaker and you find some of this harder to resonate with. You don't like to think that you have enemies out there. I don't like conflict. If, I, if there's conflict in my life or tension, I want to resolve it as quickly as possible. And even if there might be people who hate me for various reasons, biblical convictions, whatever, I'd like to think that I could reason with them and we could find common ground. Well, people like me, people like that, need to be reminded that there is a great cosmic battle going on. That Satan does hate God. And that many people hate God. And they hate God in part because of his righteous judgment, because of what he says is right and moral, as well as what is wicked and evil. This proclamation that God is a righteous judge over all peoples, and that he judges according to his righteousness, is offensive and despised to fallen sinners who want to rule their own lives and want to be their own judges which is all of us apart from Christ. This is partly because our, we want to define things the way we do. Our godless culture has redefined righteousness and justice, and many of the things that it says are right and just, God says are wicked. In many ways, our culture says that being true to yourself is the greatest good, that submitting to your own desires and impulses is more is better, is more ethical than submitting to God. That submitting to a church community and the authority of God's word is abusive. Our culture says things like that the fight 
for abortion is a just and righteous cause. Or that the fight for normalizing gen transgenderism and gay marriage is just and righteous. Now, while some of us may be reticent to see people as enemies, and I include myself in that, and certainly we should desire all to come to the knowledge of God and his grace. We should not be blind to the resistance and hatreds of God's ways in our world, and at times, of God's people. Now, this doesn't mean that all believers, unbelievers, will be actively hostile to us, or that we should imagine things to be worse than they are, or that we should be jerks in order to encourage hostility. God forbid. But we should expect and not be surprised by hostility, accusations, slander, and persecution. Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Apparently this was a common image in those days, because we see it there in Psalm 7 as well. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So even if we aren't aware of human enemies that are set against us, we know the devil is set against us. So how do we respond? How do we live in such a situation, especially when we are feeling, when we are readily aware of that people are against us? Notice what David does. So the overarching idea here, the overarching thing that he does is to entrust himself to the right judgment of God. We see that right from the get-go in verse 1. He, he confesses, and then he pleads with God. So there's first a confession of trust and faith in God. In you do I take refuge. I look to you to be my help and strength and protection and security. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not taking things into my own hands and trying to get my own revenge and justice. I'm not turning to, to wicked means to save myself. I'm trusting you to rescue me from my enemies, from the danger around me. So in the midst of trouble, David turns his eyes to God. But at the same time, he pleads with God, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. He asks God to be what he believes him to be, be a refuge and a help for his people. Now, God does not ask us to not wish our situation would change. Sorry, I know there was two negatives in there. You're not supposed to do that. God does not ask us to not wish that our situation is, would change. There is a contentment in God and what he wills that we should be seek after. It is good to be content. But at the same time, we see that we can plead with God, cry out to God to act. We don't have to be happy with difficult things. We can plead for God to act. And so... Putting these two things together right there in verse 1, we see that we can and should both actively put our trust in God and present our request to God. God, I do look to you to be my help. Help me now. God, I know that you said you will work all things together for good, and I believe this. Do it now, because I don't see it. In other words, be God. Be who you say you are. And this leads to another thing that we see David do, and that we are also called to do. 
And that is leave vengeance, or retribution, justice to the Lord. You see it in verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Now, notice that this is not David taking justice and retribution into his own hands and then claiming God's authority for whatever he does. We don't have the right to do that, for God to authorize every act of vengeance that we do. No, this is trusting God to do what is right. Paul also writes about this in the New Testament. In Romans 12, I'll read a couple verses. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And if you jump forward to verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is precisely a hope in God's eventual and just judgment that allows us to bless those who persecute us. We know that everything will be made right in the end. We don't have to take it into our own hands. We don't have to personally denounce curses on our enemies or seek to get back at them. We can pray for God's righteous justice and anger against what is truly evil, even as we bless and work for the good of those who may be our enemies. In other words, it is not an injustice to do good to our enemies. It is not an injustice to do good and to actively seek the good of those who hurt us or hate us. Jesus taught this clearly. Jesus demonstrated this clearly from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In the moment where he is being the most unjust moment of all of history, where Jesus is dying, he prays for the good of those killing him. And so if, if our trust in God's judgment makes us proud and arrogant and bitter and unteachable, then we do not actually trust God's judgment. Because if we truly trust God's judgment, we don't put ultimate stock in what others say about us or against us, but we also don't put our complete trust in what we ourselves think of this. And we see this in verses 3 to 5, which I referenced earlier, where, where David says, if I've done any of this, if there's wrong on my hands, then essentially let me to be destroyed. We should be careful about being so self-assured that we don't assess whether even our enemy's words against us might have a, a little truth in them, let alone the corrections of our friends and brothers and sisters. We see the same idea in 1 Corinthians, as Paul writes, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, which is essentially what David's saying, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Just because I don't see anything wrong with me doesn't mean that it, I don't see 2020. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, in our day, the first part of this is celebrated. In our world, it is completely celebrated and, and proclaimed that we shouldn't let others judge us. 
And then we shouldn't find our identity and worth in what others say. And that's, ex that's entirely true. Don't do that. Not as an ultimate thing. But what our culture does not recognize is that it is equally dangerous to ju trust judgment to ourselves. Others can be wrong. We can be wrong. We can't be our ultimate judge. And hope in God as judge, hope in God's just judgment, frees us from both of these things. We aren't slaves to the opinions of others, but neither are we so self-sure and blind that we can never receive correction or advice from what others say. Now, what do we do in that situation? How do you pick and choose? How do, you, how do you know what to hear and what to not hear and what to make much of and not to make much of? Well, the Word of God is to be our guide and measure and rule. We are to entrust ourselves to what God, who will be our judge, says. And part of what that means is that we do give a place to God's people, to the church, to speak into our lives and to help teach us and apply God's Word. We are told things like, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. Or in Hebrews, we are called to exhort one another, one another every day, as long it is, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So if you, would, if you want to be quickly deceived by sin and hardened thereby, close yourself off to all words and exhortations and advice of others what that's saying. We all have blind spots. We all have these inner attorneys that are working overtime to justify our cause and excuse our sin. And so we need one another to help us see ourselves rightly in light of God's word. Now, as we trust ourselves to God's ultimate judgment, we are assured over and over again that it is a right and just and good judgment. God is not a wicked judge. He's not an arbitrary judge. He's not a passive, disengaged, uncaring judge. Look at verses 9 through 11 again. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. Oh, righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So the word used for righteous here means morally in the right, innocent, just, upright. Its contrast would be the wicked. The word for judge means to pass a judgment, and this can either mean defending what, is, what or who is right, standing up for what is right, or condemning, exposing what is wrong. And so God, as the righteous judge, draws the lines, passes right judgments in all the right places. If, if, this were a, if there were a courtroom full of completely objective and wise and good, pure people, they would cheer and approve every judgment that God made. Yes, that is good, that is right, that is what this world needs. They would cheer and approve when the righteous are saved and protected and vindicated and they would cheer when the evil of the wicked comes to an end. Now you have a little bit of uh, some maybe uncomfortable language there where we hear that God will 
wet his sword, bent and readied his bow, prepared for him his deadly weapon. These are images, pictures to help us understand God's judgment of the wicked. I don't think they're meant to be taken literally. The focus here isn't on exactly what God's judgment of the wicked will look like, but that it will be. There will be justice. God will do what is right. So our ultimate hope is that God will judge rightly. No, no resistance to him, no wickedness against him or wickedness against others will be worth it in the end. All will be made right. And every act of faithfulness to him, every trust in him, every love, every deed of love towards him or towards others will be worth it. Again, lines will be drawn, judgment will come down in exactly the right place. And our response, then and now, is given to us in the last verse there. This should lead us to praise. Give to the Lord thanks. Sing praise to the name of the Lord. Um, theologian Miroslav Volf writes, If God were not angry at injustice and deception, and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. We all know this. Sometimes it's easy in our world to live in uh, with the idea that there's not real deep evil and injustice out there. But then we come face to face with it, and we know that there is, and we know that something must, have, must be done. And so part of what should compel us to worship God is that he will judge and, and bring a right judgment. And I encourage you as, you, as you think on God in worship, in your prayers throughout your day, as you consider who God is, as you read his word, don't, don't miss this. Don't fail to worship God for this aspect of his character. Now, I want to close by considering that phrase in verse 12. If a man does not repent. That is a conditional statement. If a man does not repent. And I realize it's only a short phrase in the midst of this psalm, but in light of the rest of the Bible, it's a pretty significant phrase. What if the evil repent? What if our enemies turn to God? What if God shows mercy to our enemies, to those who have hurt us, and establishes them as his people? What if they come to have the hope and assurance and comfort of God's favor and promises and blessings? Are we willing to celebrate God's mercy to those who are our enemies? Are we willing to celebrate, like, Psalm 103 that we looked at a few weeks ago, being true about our enemies, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions. Can we celebrate that that is God to our enemies if they repent? Are we willing to trust in the judgment of God, whether that is a right anger and punishment for sins committed, or whether that is mercy and love, wherever there is repentance. 
Or are we like Jonah? I appreciate one of you bringing up the case of Jonah after last week's sermon. If you recall, Jonah is sent by God to call the wicked city of Nineveh to repentance for its sin and to turn to God. Jonah doesn't want to go. You know some of the story. But picking up at the end of chapter 3 of, of Jonah, we read, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Now, this was a wicked city and people whom Jonah had reason to despise. Whom we probably would have despised. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry with God. That is. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Jonah's like, God, I was right. Never a great, great thing to say to God. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah's not too happy about this and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So here's the million-dollar question. Does our sense of justice factor in that God is a merciful God? In our leaving it to the wrath of God, in leaving it to the justice of God, do we allow that God may show mercy to our enemies, to those who have done great harm, great evil, to those who have hurt us? And unlike Jonah, are we willing to celebrate such mercy? Even more, do we recognize that we were in the same position? All of us. That we were enemies of God and his people. And if not for the grace of God to, to call us and save us and change us, that we would still be there. Apart from the grace of God, this psalm could be prayed against us. We naturally, of course, put ourselves in the position of David, but... We can only do that by the grace of God. And so in reading this, we need to be careful of thinking, careful not to think that there are two kinds of Christians. There are those who naturally, are like David, are, are righteous and deserving. And then there are the wicked who, who need to rely on the mercy of God. No, there's only one way to God, and that is by his mercy. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners like you and I. And so we worship God, not only for his righteous and just judgment, but also for his mercy and compassion. If not for the kindness of God, our mischief and violence, as it says, would fall on our own head. And so we can trust in God to both we can trust in God to do right, both towards those who turn to him and repent and embrace his mercy, and toward those who don't and remain his enemies. And we can be abundantly thankful that God is not only just and righteous, but also merciful. God is both the righteous judge and the merciful, compassionate Savior. This is exactly what we need. We need him to be both, 
This is exactly what our souls cry out for. This is what our world needs. We're going to pray, and we're going to worship him for the entirety of who he is. Let's pray.